the sovereign God who is revealed in the Old Testament, in the Bible, if you will, the God who is confessed in the Christian tradition. That this God is no longer present. This kind of atheism is not born of the intellect. It is born of the will. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Instant. I hope you are just as excited about the new intro song as I am. I was actually going through a Starbucks drive through the other day and it was recommended to me to listen to um, by the drive through employee. You know, who I, he asked me my name and I said Steven and he said, hey, just whenever you get a chance, just check out this psychedelic song called I Am Steve by Hey Steve. And it is now the theme song for my life as well as this podcast. Um, it's a 50 second intro, which is like kind of weird. I didn't want it to be that long, so I'm sure that'll change, but that song is not going anywhere. So, um, yeah. Anyway, for today's episode, I'm going to be venturing away from the series that I've been working on called Seinfraga, which has to do with a philosophy of the self and just an examining the psychological history of the notion of the self, I guess. And move instead now to today to a debate, or more specifically, a commentary on my recent debate with an atheist by the name of Moster. Now, that, of course, is not his real name. That's his YouTube name. Uh, his screen name on Discord, however, was Philosopoet. So as you listen to the debate, you'll hear me refer to him by both names. So don't be confused as you go forward. And I think it's rather unfortunate that I actually never caught his real name, especially considering when you're discussing such a serious matter as the existence of God. And so the fact that I never got his name, I'm still kind of upset about. But nonetheless... Yes, I did participate in a debate, um, probably against my own better judgment, but it's something that I thought would be of some spiritual benefit in order to explore what I've been developing over the last year or so as to a philosophy of religious communication. So for those of you who have been listening and following along with me for some time now, you've perhaps incessantly been hearing me speak of this notion of a religious communication or a form of religious communication, one which I derived by and large from the writings of the Danish philosopher Sorn Kierkegaard, although there are some other borrowings from philosophers like Aristotle, Socrates, Augustine, Pascal, and others. But now, what you'll expect to find in this episode specifically uh, are various splices or sections of the debate that I'm going to play for you today, although you won't be listening to the debate in its entirety, so yes, you can be relieved, because otherwise, as I understand it now, at the time of my making this episode, the debate was actually posted at a private YouTube address and can only be accessed through some direct sharing of the link itself. So in order to get a hold of it, you probably have to come through me, or again, maybe at some point down the line in the future it will be publicly available, but for now you have to come through me or the other individual who um, is the source of this YouTube link, who I don't, which, you know, I don't know who that is. But anyway, so what I think is nice then about this episode is that you don't have to subject yourself to a two-hour-long conversation between two random blokes on the existence of God. But instead, you can listen to the summarized version through my hour-long commentary here about it. So what you'll expect from me today is that you will get to hear snippets of the debate itself, but I want to see moreover if I can cover the entirety of the debate through some clarifications on what I mean by a philosophy of religious communication. So just talking a little bit about my tactical approach there and just kind of the theoretical background behind it. Furthermore, discuss some details behind the metaphysics of the arguments that I used because a lot of them were pretty philosophically heady, and I kind of want to cover that in some detail so I don't lose anybody in the clouds. But 
otherwise, finally, address some general objections which are raised in the debate, such as the problem of evil, the problem of God's foreknowledge, that is to say, how can God have a knowledge of future contingents, and yet that knowledge not be causal, and again, all these terms and all this will be explained in due course. And then also we spent some time on the problem of how we can know anything about God at all, which is to say that how can we know anything about the divine essence or work up to some philosophically significant understanding of it when our finite minds don't have that kind of access to infinitude, if you will. So we'll examine those um, objections and then some in due course, and hopefully this will all take within just the course of an hour. So hopefully it's not too long. It may be a little bit over, but I'm sure you won't be upset about that. But um, otherwise, I guess... Just talk a little bit about why I'm making this episode, because I suppose there are a number of reasons, um, but primarily because my reception of the debate was that it often got lost in talking past one another, which again is a frustrating experience in itself, but I think there was a frustration on my part, because I more so wanted to center the conversation around the seriousness of it. So in other words, I didn't want to be so preoccupied with the question, does God exist, but instead of the question, what is the possibility of my relation to God? Because I think for me, it's just strange to ask that question, does God exist, at least from a Christian kind of experience. Because asking the question, does God exist, somehow presupposes that there's some doubt about the matter. And so one thing I think is important to keep in mind is that whenever there's a philosophical presupposition that tends to start or excuse me, whenever there's a philosophical system that tends to start with a presupposition, it'll likewise end in that presupposition. So it's weird in my mind to think that if we start with doubt, that thereby we'll somehow end up in faith. Um, whereas conversely, I think that if we start with doubt, we will likewise end in doubt or doubt about God's existence in some manner or other. But anyway, all this and other topics we will discuss at length in due course. But without further ado, I want to go ahead and get started with the debate and just play the opening remarks, um, just talking a little bit about my initial introduction, my opening statements, um, and then we'll go ahead and, and get into the commentary afterwards. So here's me talking for about three or four minutes, and then I'll stop it, and then we'll talk about it. Okay, here we go. I know we've never met before, but <laughs> as I understand it, um, I suppose you're taking up an atheist position, I, I guess. That's correct. Okay, so tell me a little bit about that. Um, so in my asking that question, I just kind of want to get out the way beforehand that I don't want to respond kind of aimlessly to atheism in general or to unbelief or to really any argument that I have sort of prior in my own mind. You know, I was talking with a friend of mine just a moment ago that typically when you have these big kind of lofty philosophical debates or theological debates, you tend to have these debates already in your mind kind of determined by this prior dialogue. And oftentimes when we come into contact with actual uh, disagreement, we're just more responding to those prior dialogues. But anyway, so I just want to get to the particular claims that you'd be making and try not to have the debate get so big. But I was just curious to hear a little bit about your position and how exactly you qualify your atheism, if, it, if you would call yourself an atheist. Anyway. Yeah, I completely agree with what you just said. In fact, I noticed myself as I heard in my last debate that I was indeed having preconceived ideas about someone's position and then that de mm. definitely influences you. Um, so let's, I personally like a conversational style myself as an mm. open discussion as opposed to a debate, but we can challenge each other's ideas and let's see where, where we get at. So uh, my atheism is actually a refusal to play an impossible game. So what I mean is that I see that all the people in the world have different ideas uh, when they think about 
God. Uh, you know, they're, mm. they're creating these imaginary rules, uh, believing testimonies of certain people, and they have a certain lifestyle. And there, I don't see a reason to think that any one of them are more likely to go than the other. What makes it even more suspicious, and what makes me even more suspicious and skeptical of these claims is that everyone is just as confident in their truth than the other. Like if you look at William Lane Craig, uh, he's super confident, right? He's a great debater. But if you look at Zakir Nayak on the other end in uh, the Islamic world, like he's just as confident, right? And yeah. both of them are sort of like using uh, arguments to come to completely mutually exclusive uh, uh, conclusions. So uh, my, I think this is an impossible game. No matter how you can spend your entire life in trying to understand, but you could still be on a wrong path and not realize it. So uh, I just refuse to believe that uh, I, I should take these claims seriously. Now, th I'm not. That's not to say that I don't think that there, a god could exist. I mean, the god hypothesis could very well be true, but I take an agnostic mm. position in that whether I can know that. And my atheism is basically, I don't have any valid reason to believe uh, one way or the other because the reasons that are being presented by any one of these theists um, are uh, sketch at best. I feel. So, what are your reasons? Let's try to see if. Uh, yeah. Your you know, that's and those were the opening remarks to the debate, which I'm sorry that I cut it off right before it was going to get exciting. But I just want to go ahead and stop here and talk a little bit about those introductory remarks and just kind of talk about from here this idea of a religious communication and how, I, how one could put it into practical, concrete effects. But I will say, however, uh, before I get into those details, that those little bloop sounds that you keep hearing over our conversation, that they're actually just little notifications that you're hearing from the chat room that took place over that conversation. So every time someone sends a message in the group chat, it makes a little bloop noise just to notify somebody. So sorry if that becomes a distraction over time. But otherwise, just by way of introduction, let's just examine a little bit um, what my intentions were from the outset of that conversation. So first and foremost, I wanted to highlight where exactly the subject of our debate was taking place. Primarily, of course, between myself and Moster. Now, we know from our prior understandings of atheism and Christianity that these two are not conceptually consistent with one another. You know, no surprise. But what we don't know, however, from the outset are each other as individuals. Hence, I recognize from the outset that it would make no sense to address atheism in general or theism in general, since these are not just vapors which are floating aimlessly about in the philosophical ether, but are views about the world which are taken up in the individual life. It's very much similar to the dictum of Socrates whenever he approached an interlocutor in one of his dialogues by saying, speak so that I may see thee. So the idea here in saying that was that the Socratic questioner is not so much concerned with viewpoints which have nothing to do with the individual at hand. I don't want to hear about who said what about what thing or other, but instead I want to hear you. One can remember, I think, otherwise, Christ's questioning of the disciples in Matthew 16. The disciples would respond back, Some say that you are John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then Christ suddenly turns his attention to the individual, Peter. But who do you say that I am? I think oftentimes in apologetics there can be an, unnecessarily an unnecessary highlight for the evangelist to ask questions. Asking questions, in other words, is some way or another 
of an expression of a living, breathing, and exercised faith. So is supposed, anyway. However, the problem with questions sometimes is that they are not directed in the fashion of a free inquiry. Rather, they are instead questions towards an intended purpose or goal. And so in this way, I think there's a temptation on behalf of the apologist to try and be ahead of the conversation. So in other words, in asking questions about the other person's worldview, whether they be an atheist or what have you, I think the apologist can pride himself on his better understanding by trying to be ahead of the question as well as the answer, such that if all goes well in the questioning period, the opponent should be brought to the intended goal of the argument's conclusion. However, the goal of apologetics is not merely to foster agreement or assent, and it breeds this kind of notion of apologetics of just memorizing arguments or memorizing objections, such that when you are in a fight one day, you'll kind of have these moves to your disposal, if you will. But what instead I think the apologist should do is succumb himself or subject himself to a more freeing inquiry, one in which the game of trying to get ahead of the response is abandoned altogether. Instead, I think that our asking questions should be more directed towards the invitation of a response. Because I think, if you see, in a debate where the question, does God exist, is raised, the Christian must operate from either the standpoint that there is no doubt about the matter, or that there is doubt about the matter. And if the Christian works from the standpoint that there is some doubt about the matter, the apologist himself is likewise, indirectly one way or another, involved with his own questioning. The inquiry he's raised with an atheist is altogether a part of the inquiry that he's really already raised within himself. And oftentimes, this apologist is only trying to extend his philosophical yoke upon the unbeliever, so as to make their existential burdens somewhat lighter. However, in supporting this idea that we shouldn't treat God's existence as if there were some doubt about the matter, I just want to read this brief passage from Soren Kierkegaard's Philosophical Fragments, particularly the section called A Metaphysical Caprice. Because when I make that claim about doubt, um, you know, treating God's existence as if there's some doubt about the matter, I imagine that there's going to be some philosophical skeptics who are Christians listening, and they're going to suggest that I'm dismissing them so easily. Or perhaps there are some fideists or mystics also listening and thinking that I'm including them so quickly here, but I'm really not doing either of those. So let me just go ahead and read the passage in question that we can go ahead and talk about it afterwards. But just to provide some context as to what I'm about to read, this is coming from a section of Kierkegaard's Philosophical Fragments where he's elucidating this idea of Jesus Christ, the God-man, being the absolute paradox. So whenever our understanding rubs up against the reality of Jesus, there's a kind of collision that takes place. And so, anyway, this is going to come from that section where he says, But what is this unknown against which the understanding and its paradoxical passion collides, and which even disturbs man and his self-knowledge? It is the unknown, but it is not a human being, insofar as he knows man, or anything else that he knows. Therefore, let us call this unknown the God. It is only a name we give to it. It hardly occurs to the understanding to want to demonstrate that this unknown, the God, exists. If, namely, the God does not exist, then of course it is impossible to demonstrate it. But if he does exist, then it is foolishness to want to demonstrate it, since I, in the very moment the demonstration commences, would presuppose it not as doubtful, but as decided, because otherwise I would not begin. 
easily perceiving that the whole thing would be impossible if he did not exist. And he goes on to say, moreover, elsewhere, And how does the existence of the God emerge from the demonstration? Does it happen straight away? Is it not here as it is with the Cartesian dolls? As soon as I let go of the doll, it stands on its head. As soon as I let go of it, consequently, I have to let go of it. So also with the demonstration. So long as I am holding on to the demonstration, that is, continuing to be the one who is demonstrating, the existence does not emerge. If for no other reason than that I am in process of demonstrating it, but when I let go of the demonstration, the existence is there. Yet this letting go, even that, is surely something. It is, after all, my contribution. Therefore, anyone who wants to demonstrate the existence of God proves something else instead. At times, something that perhaps did not even need demonstrating. In any case, never anything better. For the fool says in his heart that there is no God. But he who says in his heart or to others, just wait a little and I shall demonstrate it. Ah, what a rare wise man he is. And there's a little footnote where Kierkegaard says, what a superb theme for a crazy comedy. If at the moment he is supposed to begin the demonstration, it is not totally undecided whether the God exists or not, then of course he does not have to demonstrate it. And so on and so on and so forth. Now, notice here that what Kierkegaard claims against natural theology, it's, it's amounting to a sort of comical observation. So by his saying that trying to demonstrate God's existence in a philosophical way is comical, I actually think he's saying something quite interesting. Because some Christians may be listening to this and think that the crux of my point or of Kierkegaard's point is that the arguments of natural theology or arguments for Christianity generally are superfluous precisely because it is comical to offer them. Rather, it is comical instead because of an interesting altogether spiritual reason. Now, this may take some time to explain, but I think it's important that I provide the context for this. Um, otherwise, this is going to come from Soren Kierkegaard's other book, The Concept of Anxiety, um, also written in 1844. It was actually published one week before the fragments. So on June 13th, 1844, Kierkegaard did The Concept of Anxiety. And then um, on the 17th, five days later, he published The Philosophical Fragments. So he actually published quite a, books, quite a bit of books that year. But now, anyway, so regarding this idea of the comical in Kierkegaard, it's actually something that I've treated in several places at length on this podcast already. So if I actually mention anything here which leaves a question unanswered that you might have, then most likely your question is going to be addressed at one of those other episodes. There's one particular that comes into mind early on in the podcast um, called uh, Soren Kierkegaard on the Erotic. Um, it's kind of this philosophical essay where I examine the relation between the erotic and the comic, talking a little bit about demonic experience, yada, yada, yada. And, and there's a more recent episode you can look further down on Soren Kierkegaard and the concept of irony, where I talk about comedy in some length. Anyway, so there's a lot of details, in other words, to fill with this discussion. I'm just going to skip most of them to try and fly through this so we can kind of get ahead to the next clip. But the conversation really begins with an observation about the demonic. The demonic to Kierkegaard has been defined as a number of different things, an enclosing reserve, the demonic as the sudden, the demonic as the negative, and so on. You could perhaps visualize Kierkegaard's conception of the demonic as sort of like a 3D cube, where all these phrases just occupy a different, particular side of the same cube. However, one interesting conception of the demonic that caught my attention from Kierkegaard was this notion of the demonic as unfreedom. So we could think of Jesus' remarks in John chapter 8. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, 
and the truth will set you free. However, it's interesting to think that demons know the truth about Jesus, and yet they are not free with respect to that knowledge. For James 2.19 says, You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. So even in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, there was the encounter the demons had with Jesus, whereby they exclaimed, What business do you have with us, Son of God? So you can see that there's a degree by which the demons have been exposed to the truth, and yet they are not really set free by it. They are indeed unfree with respect to their relation to the truth. The quality of this unfreedom exhibits itself in a kind of anxiety in the individual life, which is anxious specifically towards the good, namely an anxiety towards freedom, or of faith, or of salvation. Since I'm speaking of things pertaining to man's Um, ultimate good. However, Kierkegaard asked the question as to how this freedom is lost exactly. Well, he answers that there are several ways, but the one which we are concerned with is the loss of freedom spiritually. As Kierkegaard writes, truth has always had many loud-voiced advocates, but the question is whether a person will in the deepest sense acknowledge the truth, will allow it to permeate his whole being, will accept all its consequences, and not, in an emergency, have a loophole for himself and a Judas kiss for the consequence. So in this way, Kierkegaard is trying to highlight the importance of truth more so away from the emphasis upon content. It is not enough, says Kierkegaard, for the individual to merely possess the truth as an object of knowledge, but rather that the truth must be appropriated within the individual life. And hence, demons themselves possess the content of salvation, but they have not appropriated the meaning or significance of that content in faith. Hence, Kierkegaard goes another way entirely in suggesting that certitude and inwardness are the defining factors of the demonic, and not, as usually supposed, the contents of faith. So he recognizes that the reason due by and large to the anxieties of this age pertain to, in one direction, truth increasing in scope, in quantity, partly also in abstract clarity, while the opposite direction, certitude, is in constant decline. I kind of want to read this at some extended length and again talk about it a little bit more. So Kierkegaard says, What extraordinary and metaphysical, or what extraordinary metaphysical and logical efforts have been put into producing a new, an exhaustive, and an absolutely correct and summative proof of the immortality of the soul? And strangely enough, while this happens, certitude declines. The thought of immortality possesses a power a pith in its consequences, a responsibility in its acceptance, which may perhaps transform the whole of life in a way that brings fear. And so one saves and soothes one's soul by straining one's mind to produce a new proof. Every such individual who knows how to produce evidence of the soul's immortality, but is not himself convinced, will always be anxious about every phenomenon whose effect on him is to force him to a further understanding of what it means to say that a person is immortal. It will disturb him. It will make an unpleasant impression on him when a perfectly simple person talks quite simply of immortality. Now, in the opposite direction, there may be a lack of inwardness. An an adherent of the most rigid orthodoxy may be demonic. He knows it all. He bows his head before the holy. For him, the truth is the aggregate of ceremonies. He talks of meeting before the throne of God, and knows how many times one is to bow. He knows everything. 
but like someone who can prove a mathematical proposition using the letters A, B, C, though not when they are D, E, F. So he becomes anxious whenever he hears something that is not the same to the letter. And yet, how much he resembles a modern speculator who has made out a new proof for the immortality of the soul and then in peril of his life was unable to produce the proof because he did not have his notebooks with him. And what is it that both of them lack? It is certitude. So notice then that there is a kind of double street anxiety that ensues from a lack of certitude and a lack of inwardness. So you see, regarding certitude, this really is a matter of a difference between certitude and content. Content is more concerned with the objects of knowledge, the what is to be known. Certitude is instead more concerned with your relation to the object of knowledge. As philosophers, there is a temptation to appropriate God just exactly as that, an object of knowledge, something that is only to be known by one's reason, not as a relationship between I and thou, but instead as intellect and idea. And this is why, so, this is why the individual so concerned with proofs and evidences has fostered an anxiety such in this way through a lack of certitude, just as their idea is subject to change through new evidences, through new phenomena and new demonstrations, so too does their God concept change along with it. And so the quality of unfreedom deepens. It is another way, however, when one lacks inwardness. The individual who lacks inwardness is anxious more precisely about their relation to the truth. In other words, they are religious down to the letter. They know what prayers to say, how many times to bow before the holy, and even to a considerable degree know what emotions to concoct whenever a religious experience calls for it. However, should there be any deviation from the letter, any removal or turning away from the rituals and the regularities, the anxiety deepens. It is almost like the drunk man who has been walking throughout the city trying to hide his drunkenness by holding himself up with the assistance of a wall. As long as the drunk man stays near the wall, no one has to be suspicious of his being inebriated. However, once the drunken man has to make his way into the public square, then all will be revealed. Inwardness, then, is a kind of sobriety, a sobriety of spirit, moreover. During the dissension of the Holy Spirit on the apostles in the book of Acts, the crowds made fun of them for being drunk so early in the morning. However, while the world thought that the apostles were drunk at one hour, so too were they drunk at the next hour, and the next, and the next, and so on throughout the entirety of the rest of their lives. Inwardness precisely pertains to this sobriety of spirit, whereas one may very well appear drunk to the world. An immediate relation with one's knowledge of God entails that one relates to God subjectively through a passionate inwardness. This is only obtained through a resolution of the will, where the self wills to be oneself before God. Now that's precisely the key factor, to will oneself before God. Unfreedom precisely pertains to this unwillingness to be oneself, which, of course, is the indicative quality of the demonic experience Kierkegaard is talking about here. So then, with all that kind of said, I'm going to go ahead and go into the next clip, but those are just kind of my musings on the kind of anxiety that I think ensues from this preoccupation with arguments. It has, I think, some indicative quality 
as to the kind of certitude or inwardness that's taking place in the individual life. And so I think when we are in conversations with others, with unbelievers, we need to be kind of getting a spiritual temperature um, of those qualities. So anyway, moving on to the next clip. That's actually, actually I think, a fascinating observation that you made. So I think, because, you know, I don't want to approach this so much as as a theist in the sense that I'm going to present you with like a philosophical skeleton and hopefully you can kind of enflesh the ideas that hopefully result in a kind of Christianity. Uh, I think first and foremost, I want to get out the way that, you know, that the bulk of this debate isn't going to rest in metaphysics or in, you know, settling certain philosophical jargon that could lead us in one direction over the other. So for me, it's, I think it's encouraging to observe that we're not so much concerned with the question, does God exist? For me as a Christian, it's, Asking that question is almost as if there is some doubt about the matter. So I'll just be charitable in saying that, you know, I could meet you on your terms and we could start from a, an area of doubt. But for me, I think you've interestingly pointed out how the God hypothesis might still very well be the case. But now we're concerned more so with the matter of my, of the possibility of my relation to the idea in question, right? So I, th I, I, I think I would push you a little bit further that you know, maybe it's not an atheism per se that you're promulgating, but more so has to do with um, certain barriers that are in the way of you coming to um, a possible belief in God. All right, so I'm sorry to, sorry to go ahead and stop it right there, but that's just, that whole statement that I just gave was just kind of a, a summarizing of all that's already been said. But you can see that I'm trying to highlight the spiritual significance of the conversation. Uh, I think it's rather strange to treat this question, does God exist, as like a philosophical question. Because what is really the consequence of determining an answer to that question more so has to do with the will and not so much the intellect. So I just wanted to make sure that we weren't getting bogged down on philosophical principles or on arguments or demonstrations or the quality of our own thought rather than avoiding the what I think is the more important, spiritually important question, which is what is the possibility of our relation to this God? Because I think it was fascinating that you could see sometimes in this debate, he'll kind of back away from an atheism where, you know, he did describe himself as an atheist in the sense that he does not believe in a God or he doesn't think there's any good reasons. But once you really back those kind of individuals into a corner, they kind of resort to a sort of agnosticism where they say, well, this kind of God might exist, but I don't have the epistemological bridges to make my way there. And so a lot of times you're dealing with that kind of agnosticism. So anyway, I'll go ahead and keep playing the next clip. I would like to put it in a way that the epistemology, like there has to be some way to know if this proposition is true or not, right? Sure. And I feel that the naturalistic explanation is better in all terms, really, to explain whatever we see. Now, as you mentioned that, is that atheistic? I don't know. I mean, uh, mm. I'm not an etymologist to, you know, uh, define as to what words mean, but if you ask me what I mean by that is, I don't believe there is a God, and if I were, if I have to believe there is a God, then I have to be presented with compelling evidence. Now, what is compelling is again could be you know, uh, I've had people who've told me that you know, uh, uh, I'm a Catholic because my grandfather told me you know that Catholicism is the best religion, and that's enough for some people, you know. Um, so, mm. is that evidence? You know, I don't know, not for me. So it has to be. I have to explore and see what convinces me. Yeah, but see, to me, that's what's so strange about the whole evidence conversation, because when we resort it back to the issue of, well, does, does God exist? And if we settle that question, well, then we still haven't really settled the matter as to how our own lives relates to that existence in question. And so 
the kind of knowledge I think is that would be afforded to us, even if I were to convince you that God exists and you're convinced of the evidence, that still doesn't necessitate you appropriating that knowledge to a relationship by which you lay down your life or you love other individuals or you appropriate certain guilts and shames in light of this faith, you know, this new knowledge that you've been given. So oh, let's let's put it this way. If sure. uh, if there is some way to separate our concepts or our imagination uh, mm. from what exists in reality, if there is some methodology to achieve that, I think like that would count as evidence. Because let's say if I say, mm. um, uh, let's say if we observe a phenomena in the natural world, right? Let's say light, lightning. And someone, there are two people who looked at this lightning and one person said that, okay, it was Zeus uh, who you know, rain, rained this lightning down. And so the other person says like, it's the Hanuman, the monkey god, let's say, mm. uh, who rained it down. So both are now hypotheses, right? Sure. So how do we distinguish like this is something that this person has just made up versus that's what the actual reason is? So how yeah. you have to present that to me, I think. Yeah, that, no, that's a very good point. Um, and you know, for me, I get a lot of help from, so particularly Christian metaphysics, a, a lot of the, uh, a, a lot based on the writings of Thomas Aquinas and his views of creation and how he talks about working from effect to cause or working from our experience of, you know, the different material um, instances we see in the world and working our way up towards divine existence. So that's one procedure of natural theology. Or we could do a top-down approach where we kind of do like an ontological argument. We could talk about whether or not the idea of God is coherent and then work our way down to our own minds, whether or not, for example, uh, philosopoet says God is a uh, existent being, not only in my own mind, but in reality as well. So there's two ways that are possible for us. So I think we can dispel of certain possibilities from the outset. So first and foremost, let's not think so particularly about what Protestants say or what Methodists say or what Mormons say or what Hindus say, because that would be a bottom-up kind of approach. Whereas I think we could talk about the sort of metaphysical views of God they have in the first place. And there's only a few main contenders in that regard. Monotheism, polytheism, pantheism, panentheism, and of, and of course, we could talk about other views as well. But those are the three main sort of worldview contenders out there. And I think if we can show on the basis of reason alone that polytheism is intellectually incoherent, that pantheism is intellectually incoherent, so we could explore those arguments. But once you do those out the way, you're left really with just monotheism. And well, who are the main players in monotheism? Well, you have Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And so for me, that's how I kind of wrestle with the plurality issue. I'm not dealing with a million different claims as to what is spirit, who is God, is there life after death? But instead, I'm, I'm examining more generally how the individual relates to the idea in question. So to me, that's what's so important here. So just to stop the debate clip there for a moment and just to make a few comments. Uh, of course, the issue that we're talking about for those of you that probably are familiar or are not familiar, this is known as the problem of religious pluralism. So it's this idea that there's a plurality of religions, of different claims as to what is ultimate or to what is good in the world. And hence, since there's this variety of claims being made, how do we know that Christianity is the sole kind of individual exclusive truth? Now, of course, that's just putting one problem of religious pluralism. There are some Christians who don't take up that exclusivistic kind of view of religions, saying that, yes, there are indeed other ways um, beyond Jesus. You know, one could be saved or experience salvation. So this might be your inclusivist or in some way your universalist. 
And anyway, there's all kinds of distinctions to make. I think what's been really helpful in dealing with the issue of religious pluralism, um, I've really gotten it from presuppositional apologists. Now, again, I'm not a presuppositionalist, but they can help out in a lot of ways. And one thing I think they interestingly talk about, um, especially John Frame and Greg Bonson, is this idea of the self-referential coherence of worldviews. So rather than deal with the particular claims of whatever some religion or philosophical system is making, because that there are a lot, we'd have to go through a lot of particulars, but you can work your way to the more general and looking at the kind of conceptual crux of their system. And so really you're looking at what they're saying about God or the ultimate. And you only get a few main views kind of in the playing field when you look at that sort of conceptual crux. As I mentioned, you get theism, this idea that God is an active kind of creator of the world. There might also be deism, where God is creator, but he's not so active or interacting with the world. Or he may not even be said to be good, but it's just a kind of grand watchmaker, if you will. Otherwise, you have views like pantheism, where all is God. And then you have panentheism, where all is in God. And different views like that. And so you can work your way through the tribal religions, different religions of the East, and you really make your way to the, to, the, to the West, where I think you get the best view of God known as monotheism, that God and the world are separate, but that there isn't a plurality of gods, nor that, that this God is synonymous with his creation. So that dispels, I think, already with pantheism, panentheism, and polytheism, where there are many gods, and so we work our way just to a monotheistic system. And who are the main religious contenders in monotheism? Well, you have, of course, there are other monotheisms in the East, but I think what you're dealing with primarily in the bulk of the West is um, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So I think that's a very nice kind of top-down approach to the issue of religious pluralism. And so just from there, you're dealing with those other claims and Islam and Judaism, which mind you that these religious systems are kind of indirectly based on one another. Um, Christianity could be seen as a building on top of Judaism, and then whereas Islam could be seen as like a breaking off from Judaism when you're looking at the lineage of Isaac and Ishmael. Anyway, so I'm going to go ahead and stop there and just go ahead and get in the next clip because I don't want to speak too much. So, yeah, anyway. Yeah, so I think we could agree from the, the outset that if we're talking about the same concept, God, that is, um, this distinction, imaginary or real, isn't a real distinction if, if we are talking about God, right? Um, there's a sense, so think about the ontological argument. To me, what doesn't interest me about Anselm's argument or his observations there is so much a proof for God's existence based on the concept of God. Rather, what's interesting is that he's saying when we are thinking about God, there is a fashion or a way in which we can't help but think of him in this way, and that is as the greatest conceivable being, or that there is no greater conceivable being. Do, so in other do you elaborate? Way, so what do you yeah, mean yeah. by greater? So, yeah, if I think if we were to take a, an inventory of all the things that exist or an inventory of being, we could see that in that being is hierarchical or that being can be graded by lesser or higher degrees of perfection. Um, so things which have a more perfect participation in being. Uh, now, in Thomas Aquinas's language, I don't want to lose so much to analytics, but things have a higher grade on this chain of being due to their imminence of activity. So, for example, the lower end of this kind of chain of being would have to do with like chemical or vegetative life. So looking at cells, plants, things which are only of reproductive or nurturing kind of nature or vegetative nature, if you will. 
And then we work our way up to animalistic nature. So now we have things that could exhibit uh, powers of, uh, sorry, go, go ahead. Objection here is that, what is your criteria of defining something that is higher level or lower? Like, why do you decide that animal is higher than the plant? Yeah, so it has to do with this idea of imminence of activity. So in philosophy, there's this idea known as powers ontology, which basically means that we can grade certain natures relative to their act of being. So, so much in language because that's not important here, but looking at plants, they, they can exhibit certain powers of reproduction, of you know, nurturing and self-sustaining themselves, photosynthesis and all that kind of process, but they don't have the power of locomotion. They can't walk up and move to wherever they want to go. They don't have powers of perceptual uh, experience like animals do. So that's kind of what I was saying. So now we get to a higher degree of being where animals can exhibit locomotion. They have a reason such to a degree that they can have a perceptual experience of things, but they can't, they can't appropriate things by reason as humans can. So now we get even higher to the experience of human beings who can now... I think something Sorry. could be my com my computer is stationary, but I'm pretty sure it has it can do math better than an animal that can move. You're at, you, I mean, you know, you're you're probably right, but that that's just it. The machine can't appropriate um, certain objects or ideas with the kind of intentionality that human beings can. So I guess the premise of my argument here is that man specifically. All right. And so the the audio actually cuts off there because this was the unfortunate part in the debate where I actually lost my Wi-Fi connection. I was actually in the middle of a really bad thunderstorm when this debate was going on and it cut off the Wi-Fi. So that actually happened twice. That This was the first of which and there's a second time that happened some five minutes later. But just to stop here and comment a little bit about what we're talking about. So we're talking about this idea of a, of a hierarchy or a gradation of being. And I, I had mentioned when I announced that I was going to do this episode, and especially I'm sure I said it in the introduction, that I was going to talk about the metaphysics behind this argument. And I think I, I do an okay job doing that already in the debate itself. Not that, of course, these ideas are self-explanatory because they do need some conceptual elaborating a little bit. But if you want to get the full scope or the metaphysical details of what I'm talking about, of this gradation of threptic, aesthetic, and dianoetic powers. You know, I actually talk about this at full length on the last episode I just produced, um, Seinfrage, so the lecture series on Aristotle, where I talk about substance, nature, matter, form, and talking about this idea of powers ontology a little bit more. And so the reason for my doing this is that I'm highlighting the point that man differs fundamentally in kind from the rest of the created order, especially from the material created order, which we only have three major levels of powers. As I mentioned already, threptic, which has to do with the vegetative or chemi chemical level. And of those threptic powers, there are really only three. Reproductive, nutritional, and growth. Um, and so we can even think about this of our own language. Um, for those of you that are familiar with grammar, you'll be familiar with transitive and intransitive verbs or eminent verbs. Such that our very language is proportionate to or related to the very way in which things are. Um, so things display a higher eminence of activity, and that word eminent just means kind of in the world. In other words, they can do more things. There are more powers ascribed to their nature, and thereby they exhibit, it, they exhibit a higher gradation on this chain of being. Um, whereas you get to God himself, who is pure act or pure actuality. There are no possibilities or potentials that are relative to his nature, whereas that's different within the created order. 
Anyway, so then again, I'm just highlighting this kind of metaphysical skeleton so that we can work our way up to God. Because I think if we outline this kind of metaphysical scheme, we are laying a kind of skeleton which is kind of awaiting to be enfleshed, if you will. So by talking about this form of metaphysics, we're starting from where we are, making our way upward. We're ascending, if you will, up into the clouds even, of course, to the level of abstract clarity. But the point is not to treat this kind of procedure as like Plato does, where we view the soul as kind of like a chariot ascending its way to the heavens, and there's some frustrations by the passions. But instead, we must, like Aristotle, make our way back towards eminence. That is to say, from the clouds back into the garden, if you will. And that's what I think is so important about this particular metaphysical scheme, because we work our way to such abstract concepts like God and so forth, but it lays the foundation for the possibility of the incarnation, of making our way to Jesus. So this might be suspicious to some people listening now, because they just heard me talk about for some 5, 10, 15 minutes or so, as to how it's ridiculous to think that metaphysical proofs, demonstrations, arguments don't really work their way to a knowledge of God. But this is fostering the means, the conceptual means from for keeping intact the idea that God exists. But moreover, especially that the beloved sought, that the lover sought the beloved. And so Kierkegaard talks about this incessant need to clarify the idea, keep the idea intact. So that when we are progressing in the dialectic um, from unbelief to belief or from object knowledge to subject knowledge to from sort of impersonal to personal relationship, that dialectic is on the basis of making sure all things are intact on the way there. And so the idea that we're working towards is this idea that love comes down or that the lover sought the beloved or that God is the one who is doing the seeking, not so much us per se. And so, again, I, I think this is just my indirect means of trying to establish a possible relation in the future. And the possibility of that relation is not something that takes place in an instant, um, insofar as I communicate it, and thereby, just by my powers of presentation, they just succumb to a kind of belief. Uh, spring doesn't happen in a day, um, nor do good things happen in a very short while. So um, I think we should lose that kind of prideful confidence in ourselves at times when we lose sight of the kind of work and the kind of time and discipline that goes into one loving God or knowing that they are loved by God. And so anyway, this is just kind of my means of doing so. Um, and yeah, anyway, so I think I'm actually going to go ahead and stop the the video here, or the, the podcast episode here. Um, I'm actually going to make a part two so we can talk a little bit about the objections that were raised as far as the problem of evil, the problem of God's foreknowledge, how does God have a knowledge of future contingents, and is that knowledge of future states uh, causal? So in other words, how are how is God's knowledge and human free will consistent or compatible with one another? Anyway, so a lot of those questions and answers are interesting. Of course, we'll address them in a future episode, but I just want to say thank you and God bless you for retaining the time and the attention to make it to the end of today's episode. Please stay tuned for the series I'm working on called Seinfraga, which has to do with the history of the philosophy of the self. I just finished an episode on Aristotle, so the next one's going to be on Plato, probably mixed with Socrates, and then we'll get into some other theologians after that, such as like Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, and more others. So... Anyway, thank you so much. God bless you. Please follow me on Facebook or Instagram if you're not already. You can find me at The Instant by Stephen Dunn, Stephen with a V, D-U-N-N. And, of course, my Instagram um, name, which you'll find most of the uh, 
substance of where I post and where I announce, you know, upcoming videos or podcast episodes. You can find me on Instagram, Stephen Dunn, twelve seventeen. Anyway, that's it. God bless you. Stay tuned for part two.